and one of the concerns I have about the current administration is they refer to their ethics program as a compliance program. And I'll, and I'll give them that is a huge improvement over Trump because he wasn't interested in complying with anything, but they're complying with incredibly weak rules and want to meddle because they're going around saying we're the most ethical administration in history. And they're just striving to be better than Trump and want to meddle for it. And we really are owed an ethical renaissance right now. thing that one time and the other one that you don't know and why do you follow me that's cool but you're here and uh so am i and i am super stoked because we have a very special episode today uh for the hour uh we are getting a treat um and interviewing a guy named Walter Schaub, who, if you don't know who he is, you will at the end of this interview. Um, he was the director of the Office of Government Ethics under Barack Obama and then, of course, under Donald Trump and famously uh, resigned uh, in protest um, uh, as to what he saw going on and going down in the Trump White House. At the same time, he hasn't stopped there. So he just didn't, you know, he didn't start dancing with the stars after all that. Uh He's now continuing to call for to, there to be more ethics in the top branches of our, gov- our government, especially the White House and the executive branch, um, and lobbying for, you know, voting rights and all that. The guy is pretty awesome, and I am super pumped to talk to him about his time in the White House, um, his time out of the White House since then what he saw going down, what he makes of the current president, the current administration, and how we can actually authoritarian-proof our democracy in the future. Walter Schaub has some ideas, so sit tight. And also, just so you guys know, this episode was recorded in the past, and it's being aired in the future. So I don't know if we make it guys. So if you're in the comments, let me know. Do we make it? If there's a Francesca Fiorentini in the comments, I hope you're enjoying your vacation. I hope everything's fine. I hope your mom's just like not too, you know, obnoxious about the whole I want to be a grandma thing, you know? Um, But thank you so much for being here. Make sure you like and share the stream right now. Um, We will be obviously accepting any kind of super chat money you want to just throw this way. You know, uh, Christmas shopping is coming up, so I get it. But hey, maybe you can get your loved one an official piece of merchandise from the Bituation Room store, bituationroom.com. To get all your Frantifa merch, we got tote bags, we got two kinds of shirts, we got stickers, and, oh balls, I didn't bring it up. Um, We're doing a raffle. So I got three books that are some of my fave. Uh, Revolution in the Air by Max Elbaum, How to Change Everything by uh, Naomi Klein, um, and a book that I contributed a chapter to called We Own the Future, all about democratic socialism in the United States and the prospects of such. Um, and I'm giving all those away, plus some stickers, plus uh, I forgot whether we decided we we're just going to fill it with candy or weed. I'm not sure. 
depending on what state you live in. But yeah, so get a piece of merch. Take a picture of yourself with it. Hashtag Frantifa swag. We're entering you into the raffle and giving one listener um, that little gifty poo. So do it. It's really great. And if, and if you know, just, just get yourself a piece of merch anyway. Just get in here. Um, yeah. And also, uh, we're going to be, um, just so you know, this show is not sponsored by anybody. It's sponsored by you. You are our dark money and you get access every single week to extra content. And I believe, I think we're going to be putting a part of this interview, uh, as part of our bonus bish. So if you are a patron, you get access to that and you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash Bituation Room. Make sure to go there, become a patron. $2, $5, 10 bucks a month gets you a shout out. Obviously, we're not doing the fart song today because it is in the future. And I haven't seen, I mean, come on, just the dozens of people who are signing up. Um, but it's it's always really fun. It's usually like even 15 to 20 more minutes of extra content. So don't sleep on that. Make sure uh, you become a patron and support this show, you know, until I can find uh you know, like a sugar daddy to just, you know, cash in and fucking, you know, support my dreams. Anyway, let's get into it. Um, you guys, I'm super stoked to have him on. He is a senior ethics fellow for the Project on Government Oversight. That's right. His work did not stop when he left the White House. Uh, it is a nonpartisan independent watchdog that in- investigates and exposes waste, corruption, abuse of power, and when the government fails to serve the public or silences those who report wrongdoing. Uh, before that, Walter served for four years as the director of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics under Obama and then resigned as i just explained and we will find out so much more uh but let's just give him a warm welcome you guys put your hands together for mr walter shop wow i can hear the applause from the future i know it's amazing right it's just definitely tenant thing here (laughs) (laughs) oh my god uh thank you so much for being on the show yeah happy to be here um i feel like the reason that I've been really attracted to your work and your writing and your Twitter feed is because you kind of, and I mean this with all due respect, uh, don't give any fucks. Hmm. And that's exactly what we need right now in a time where, you know, our democracy is very much on the ropes and the people in power don't seem like they're taking this fight seriously. And someone who's been on the inside and is just like calling things for what they are. Um, no matter who's in power. So I just hats off to you and your inability to put down Twitter, Walter. (laughs) Um, No, but I want to ask you, because, you know, I actually found out that there was an office of government ethics because of you. And I, and I, it like blew my mind that this thing even existed. Obviously I'm maybe I'm just slow. Maybe I didn't know, but what did the office of government ethics do? What does it do? And and yeah, what were you doing up until the point where you left? You know, I worked there a long time before I was the director. And one of the things I said in my confirmation hearing that I wanted to do 
was get people more familiar with the Office of Government Ethics to reassure people we were in there doing something. I did not expect that would come true in the way that it did. You know, we practically stood on a street corner with signs saying we exist, trying to engage with the public. And we were really excited that we'd gotten up to like 500 Twitter followers. Uh, <laughs> and then in a period of five months, we jumped to like 55,000 for all the wrong reasons, or maybe all the right reasons, because the public kept sending cards and messages saying, keep up the fight, hold them accountable. Um, you know, the Office of Government Ethics, the name is something of a cruel joke because mm -hmm. uh, the agency was created in the wake of the Watergate scandals. So here we find ourselves 40 years ago uh, encountering similar problems, though not nearly as bad as now. And Congress responded by passing... Um, an ethics law, one that the president at the time, Jimmy Carter, championed, even though it had some personal inconvenience for him. Right. Uh, they created the Office of Government Ethics, and I think the name was lofty and was intended to inspire an ethical culture. And amusingly, OGE had a file full of articles around the time where all these people in Washington were claiming it was going to destroy government to have the morality police running around and keeping them honest, mm -hmm. uh, and they'd never be able to recruit anybody. Well, um, Congress never really gave OGE much power. And when it started in 1979, it only had about 20 people, and it never grew more than 100, and then shrunk back down to about 75 people. Um, but its mission is very narrow. It resolves financial conflicts of interest in the executive branch, especially with the top leaders like Senate confirmed appointees. Mm. And it oversees agency ethics officials that it doesn't directly supervise, but it writes the regulations for their work and and then audits it. Um, so there's about 4,500 agency ethics officials scattered through a government of 2.1 million civilian federal employees and they're really good at what they do. It's mm. just that what they do is so limited, it can't um, meet the challenge of a truly corrupt presidency. I think it worked fairly well for about four decades, creating a culture where uh, people uh, valued avoiding conflicts of interest. It it, it didn't mm. get into other things that we might consider ethics. You know, it's unethical that we're destroying the environment and we're all going to live on a either frozen wasteland or burning cauldron of whatever. Um, but that's beyond uh, the scope. But that's really beyond the scope. And so it, it focused on um, financial conflicts of interest. Um, and I think in retrospect, it's weaker. We knew it was weak at the time, but it was so much weaker than we ever thought it was. Uh, and, right. and I think what Trump did was expose the weaknesses, not create them mm. or exploit yeah. them rather. And exploit them. No, that's I mean, in, in so many different areas. But I mean, it's interesting because it, it kind of reminds me of like a almost like a bearing witness human rights model. You know, yeah. like it's important to bear witness for sure. Um, but uh, sometimes human rights groups are like also really toothless. They're just like, this is happening, you know, anyway, yeah, let's, let's keep going. And you're just like, wait a minute. Um, but you guys are like the better angels. The people are like, yeah, yeah, no, I realize I could do that, but I'm not going to, um, I guess before we talk about the Trump administration, I did want to ask you 
about, you know, I'm I'm floored because I look at someone like vice former vice president Dick Cheney, who was invested in Halliburton and then, you know, helped spearhead the drive to invade Iraq. Um, yeah. And Halliburton won big time in terms of private no bid contracts and things like that. So, you know, and, and I don't again, maybe he was divested enough from the company. Um, but I mean, to say that he was not raking it in from that is ridiculous. So uh, how did it do you feel like it it wasn't working back then and it was just even more egregious under Trump, how poorly it functioned? Yes and yes. Um, both are true. Um, you know, one of the most clever things that the people in Washington who are really opposed to a truly ethical government on both sides of the aisle uh, have done is they've played a sleight of hand where it focuses our attention in the wrong place. And so take a look at Dick Cheney, for instance. He, I, it was before my time, so I'm piecing this together from right. news reports, but he was allowed to keep stock options in Halliburton. And when he sold them, he gave all of the profits to charity. So he didn't personally profit. And there was a model um, for that when Ronald Reagan did the same thing with his um, movie royalties. He donated them to charity while mm -hmm. he was in government. Uh, so that isn't the primary conflict of interest. The primary conflict of interest is that this is a guy who came from Halliburton and was deeply loyal to, to a government contractor um, culture and then participated in one of the greatest lies in our history and caused hundreds of thousands of deaths as a result, um, including some American deaths, um, oh, yeah. although far fewer. Um, so I, I think one of the problems with government ethics is that we define it too narrowly. And then I think the things it focuses on are important, but I think they distract us sometimes from other things that are also important. Mm -hmm. Tell me about then those early days uh, and the dude who completely um, revealed that even as narrow as OGE was, it was like, well, this this cannot stand, um, yeah. you know, and, and what what things were like under Trump and what you were initially flagging. It's hard for us to think back to those first days. But what were the what were those red flags? So, you know, I knew what I was getting into in the pre-Trump world. Nobody could have anticipated him, but uh, I knew that the director job was a job that came with no power other than um, the power of diplomacy and persuasion. Mm. Um, and so OGE had three main points of leverage, so to speak. It didn't have power, but it had leverage. One thing it could do with presidential nominees who needed Senate confirmation was until they would agree to sell off conflicting assets and recuse from certain things, we could hold up their nomination. And right. that incentivized them to cooperate with us. And that is probably the one part of OGE's job that functioned fairly well, even after I left um, under Trump. But for most things, the point of leverage was that for a tiny agency, OGE had a great deal of access to the White House and could call up the White House counsel's office anytime somebody in the administration was misbehaving and wasn't coming around to do what we wanted. And they would almost always get a call pretty quickly from the White House, and that'll change your attitude fast. Mm -hmm. um, then the third option was one that... Um, 
members of Congress talked about when OGE was created and then it came up for reauthorization hearings every five years. They talked about, similar to what you said about bearing witness, that OGE could go public with concerns and oh, wow. that that would create public pressure. And in fact, over the years, they asked prior directors about him. One, Steve Potts, who served two terms as director for a total of 10 years, talked about how the mere threat that OGE could go public prevented it from ever having to go public. Hmm. So things changed radically when Trump came in. Um, one of the the disappointing features among so many was that prior to the tr- election, we were working with both the Clinton and Trump campaigns. And the Trump campaign brought in a bunch of people who worked for Chris Christie, who were actually really focused on learning how to do things and were serious about producing a good transition. And I was fairly confident the morning after the election that at least we were going to have a smooth transition. And then they fired Chris Christie and almost his entire team, except for one like 29-year-old kid uh, who wound up becoming the head of presidential personnel and then made news uh, for throwing drinking and vaping parties in the presidential personnel office in the White House. So. Was this wasn't that wasn't Papadopoulos, right? There was some other. No, that was that was yet another one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and so. It was radio silence for several weeks. And we were freaking out because the transition is like April 15th for accountants for OGE. That's when we are turning over an entire leadership of a government and the country's vulnerable if there should be. I mean, imagine if we had a pandemic during a transition or or a Imagine. Uh, or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we did this time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh. Um, uh, so we were freaking out. And finally got a hold of them after like the transitions 10 weeks and we lost 20 or 30% of it before we even made contact and another 20% before they even got rolling. And they brought in Don McGahn, who later made himself infamous as Trump's counsel to the president, mm-hmm. who was, I've never met anybody more clueless. You know, it makes me wonder about these big law firms where people pay so much money, like $1,100 an hour for their services, because I've never met anybody who knew less about the task he had undertaken. I don't think he even realized there was a transition that he was supposed to run. And in fact, once we got rolling, you know, my team worked really hard. We were working till like 11 o'clock, 1130 at night on New Year's Eve. And Don McGann was off in Philly playing a gig with his garage band Shut uh, because up. he was just clueless about what was involved. So, things- Which is funny. I mean, Don McGann, by the way, is kind of like almost has been like the moral compass of some of, of the worst Trump impulses. I believe that's been you know, McGann, right? Who's been like, no, I think he maybe some false good press for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. Cause you know what he is? He He's the, he's, if you ever watched the, the super old show, uh, leave it to Beaver. He's the Eddie Haskell kid who encourages everybody else in the playground to misbehave. And then the <laughs> teacher comes out and he's like, Oh, not me. Um, because he's a lawyer and he knows he could go to jail if he did the things they wanted. And it's not that he thought they were bad. He thought, I don't want to go to jail. And so yeah. uh, he kept himself on the right side of the law. But boy, have things gone wrong when that's the standard for being the good guy in an administration, not yeah. a criminal. Congratulations. Here's your medal. <laughs> 
So you, but you did speak out. You utilized the ability to speak out um, as director of OGE. And yeah. what caused you finally to do so? You know, I mean, from the beginning, I guess the transition briefly, what is supposed to happen? What are they supposed to give over, turn over to you? So, you know, um, during a transition, we're supposed to work with presidential nominees at the Office of Government Ethics and turn over about 900 of the top positions, including Department of Defense secretary and secretary of state and work with them on their financial disclosures, which, you know, these guys are always rich, unfortunately. And so it takes weeks to go through their disclosures and then negotiate ethics agreements. Uh, And in the Trump administration in particular, they fought us all the way. Why should I have to sell this? Why is that a conflict? Um, And and that really- Or a public, or a trust, right? Isn't that the idea? You freeze your assets- that's a whole other story. There are currently zero blind trusts in the executive branch, and there haven't been any since Henry Paulson, Treasury Secretary, created one in 2006. So mm-hmm. uh, suffice to say, the ethics problems are so complex, the things that we often think of as solving them don't really work. Right. Um, but yeah, on, on January 11th, 2017, he announced that he was not going to be selling after having strung everyone along and saying, I'm going to have no conflicts of interest. And he did that sham news conference with the phony stacks of papers and yeah. and uh, folders that were probably blank and certainly had no... Cr- I mean, it was like somebody who'd never seen a folder created that prop because <laughs> um, they weren't wrinkled, they weren't sticky tabbed, they weren't worn out. Um And they announced they were setting up their fake blind trust and putting his kids in charge of it. Uh, And I just thought, well, that's the last straw. And I I had prepared uh, in the worst case scenario to speak and and, um, finalized it as he was talking and went and gave a presentation where I talked for 13 minutes about how this guy should divest. And I pretty much figured it was a speaking letter of resignation because I was sure I was going to be fired at noon on January 21st. And the reporters in the room scared the daylights out of me because they were sitting there ignoring me, checking their phones, typing away to each other. And one by one, they start looking up and one by one, their eyes start getting bigger and they pause. And then all of a sudden there's this frenzy where they're on the phone and they're typing. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to have consequences for me. (laughs) You almost got through it without anyone. Like, keep looking at your phone. Damn it. Um, and, and the only reason I think they didn't fire me is because Jason Chaffetz, the head of the oversight committee, went after me and botched it so badly <laughs> that he then got fried by his constituents in a town hall meeting, scaring the daylights out of him. And all of a sudden he went from going after me to trying to de-escalate, which I was happy to do um, and did what I could to keep the Trump administration honest. But um you know, that's like saying move a mountain with a spoon. I, it wasn't going to happen. No, you're, I mean, there is no good analogy for this. I'm like thinking yeah. like, you're like the person at the bachelor party. That's like, no, maybe we shouldn't have strippers and cocaine. And <laughs> not even, cause that's what's supposed to happen usually. But um, yeah. And so, so you, you were not, you did not resign yet and you were not fired yet. Yeah. Until when? So, um, you know, I stayed till July and had some clashes. Kellyanne Conway did her infamous routine where she told everybody to go buy Ivanka stuff. And I tried to get them to reprimand her for that. 
And um, I found out that this rumor that they were creating secret uh, ethics waivers in the White House that nobody was privy to. So I went after those. And in late April, I demanded that they release all of them to me. And I gave them till May 30th. Um, I was told that they called over to Saudi Arabia where he was for some reason. And we assumed it was to ask if he could fire me. But I managed to get Chuck Grassley, of all people, involved um, trying to find out, well, what are these secret waivers? And I'm yeah. told he insisted that they release them because, as I quoted in a letter that I sent, he had insisted Obama release his. Uh, so, so, so on the morning, I, I truly believe, although I can't prove that they created all the waivers on the morning of the deadline and that the secret of the secret waivers is there were no secret waivers. They were just violating the rules. They just invented it. Yeah. Because when we got them, they were most of them were unsigned, undated. And the metadata showed that not only the PDF, but the MS word had been created that morning. Uh, (laughs) And who knows? It's possible they were created before, but I don't believe it. In my heart of hearts, I'll always believe they ginned them up that morning because they were out of options. <laughs> so. Yeah, like everything I do is legal. Yay. Just yeah. a little thumbprint, you know, put a little, you know, I don't know, some of the breakfast <laughs> that you ate. Um, and, and wipe your mouth on this. led me to quit after that was um, that they adapted. After that, they just cut me off from all information. And I had to certify White House financial disclosure reports. And I felt like if I refused to certify all of them, I look partisan and I look like I'm just trying to undermine Trump. But if I sign off on any of them without knowing what these people are doing for a living and without having answers to questions about their finances, I am becoming window dressing for corruption. And so I just felt I was out of options. You know, the whole time I kept checking in with myself because it certainly wasn't any fun. And I went from having a one eye twitch to two eye twitches at the same time, which People say they couldn't see, but it makes you feel like a maniac. Um, and um, I kept asking myself. That's just called blinking, Walter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I was like <laughs> this, so it's a little more disturbing. Um, <laughs> and um, um, I asked myself three questions. Number one was, can you do the mission? Number two, can you do it ethically and morally? And number three, can you tell the truth? And all three of those, two of those kept being true all the way to the end. But by July, I realized I couldn't do the first one, do the mission. And OGE was also barred by law from talking to Congress. So I couldn't get Congress oh, wow. involved in helping me. Not that I think they would well, have anyways, but my hands are really tied. That seems, um, that seems bizarre that you, that OG, I mean, who would you report to? You're, I mean, so you're reporting to, to the actual to Congress, executive branch? Yes. Yeah, so to talk to Congress, I have to talk to the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the executive office of the president, the EOP, which means that Trump would have to give me permission to go and tattle on him to Congress. Um, so, you know, we could answer questions that came from Congress, but we couldn't sit down with them and say, here's the help we need. And I just felt like leaving government, I would be able to I took a gamble. I thought I'll be able to get a bigger platform outside government than I would have in it um, because my time in the sun in the government was fading now that I was losing access to information and I wouldn't have a platform to oppose what was obviously the most corrupt administration in history. 
So I left and I feel like I really did wind up having a bigger platform. And I now work for the past four years or so very closely with congressional staff on legislative efforts and things like that to try to bring about the change that I couldn't bring about from within the government. And also gave me freedom to adopt a broader definition of government ethics. Because, you know, in answer to an earlier question about weren't there always problems, the answer is yes, but I felt obligated to stay within the lane of the role that I had agreed to take on in government as leading an office that had a very specific mission. I leave government now, I feel like a lot more things are government ethics than are within OGE's purview. And so that that was important to me as well as things were just crumbling. I mean, it's, yeah, you, it was, it's whatever, oil and uh, water and vinegar, oil, water, oil, whatever, an unshaken salad dressing is what I'm saying. But you, <laughs> you had a, a difficult, if not impossible task at the, yeah. a, at the head of OGE and, and, and yeah, I mean, you just named it right there that like, it's mostly kind of a norm, a rubber stamp, a sort of disclosure. Yes, that you can go public and whenever, if there's a threat, then maybe, you know, the executive branch sort of complies. Um, but it ultimately lies under the executive branch in and of itself. Like that. So isn't that your, your hands are tied? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Really, we need reform. And I think that's the big thing is that for four years, good government groups were working to prepare um, proposals for how Congress could reform. And frankly, the House did its part. It passed the For the People Act, H.R. 1. Um, you know, you, we've also got the John Lewis Freedom to Vote Act um, right. out there or, or the John Lewis bill and the Freedom to Vote Act out there. Um And everything has just stalled in the Senate. What we needed, what we had after Nixon was an ethical renaissance as soon as we got a new administration. What we needed after Trump was an ethical renaissance to make corruption too hard to do in government and to make authoritarianism hard to achieve in government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just feel like the current administration is clueless to the threat. And they certainly have put a lot more effort into infrastructure than they have into voting rights, which, you know, I, I think the infrastructure stuff is important, but without voting rights, we don't have a Republic. Right. So that scares me. I want to talk more about that, but I do want to just understand more about, you know, the ethics in government as it stands currently. Cause it seems like, um, you know, you're you mostly dealt with OG mostly dealt with financial stuff, correct? Because this was nothing to do with, um, you know, Sally Yates blowing the whistle on Michael Flynn, you know, and and his him being compromised. Um, it it had much more to do with just financial disclosure. Not even much to do with tax taxes, or did it? Did, were you like asking? Because currently, you presidential candidates don't have to divulge tax returns, correct? Right. I mean, that's another thing that's just a norm. And and um, Trump blew right through it. And of course, you have that blockbuster New York Times article that lays out allegations of tax fraud uh, that just were unresponded to by the White House. The White House's response is just fake news. Um, and um, that 
that in any other era would have been earth shattering. But I think we reach such a partisan uh, time that the guy became impervious to the one thing that members of Congress always thought would keep a president in check. And that's fear of public rebuke. Right. Now, in a sense, you could say, well, Congress was right because he's not in the White House anymore. He lost. And we'll never know if it was the corruption or the pandemic that drove him out of office. It certainly seemed like before he botched the pandemic response, Biden was going to have an awfully big challenge trying to beat him. Oh, yeah. um, so I'm not sure it was the corruption. Oh, I, I 100% think that if the pandemic hadn't gone down the way it did, uh, Trump would have been reelected. Um, yeah. Walter, we I'm getting a little bit of uh, feedback. Uh, uh, Echo, do you want to just throw on the giant cans? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, here we go, Houston. I'm going to try. Plug yeah, yeah, let's do this. Looking money. good. Can you, can, is it better now? Testing. I'm going to hear it. See if I can hear myself. Yeah, no, it's great. Can you okay. hear me? Yeah. And you can still oh, hear me. Yeah. You sound excellent. Okay. Um, I just didn't want to hear myself, but yeah. So, so right. So OGE was mostly about disclosures, uh, um, blind trusts and, and, the, and the like, right. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's financial disclosure. It was also recusals based on business relationships and family relationships. And, um, you know, that's important. It's not that that's not important. It's just that that's not enough. Well, and there's such a revolving door in Washington between the private and public sector that it's like it's hard to know where your job starts and ends. Um, but yes, at least, you know, with the executive branch, you know, you can sort of zero in on a couple things. Do, do you, I know you have had, um, you've laid out a lot of like how OG could be reformed, how ethics in the highest office could be reformed. What are some of those ideas? What are like, what do you think needs to happen? And then, yeah. And then maybe your assessment of how Biden's doing when it comes to his own conflicts of interest in his cabinet. Yeah. So, um, I truly believe that the most important thing is something that people may not think of as government ethics, but I want to make a quick case that it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the voting rights stuff. I think we absolutely need to protect the freedom of every single person in America who's an adult to vote. And um, the reason I view that as a corruption issue is that when you look, think about the definition of corruption it's the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. Uh, there's two, two things wrong with that in the context of voter suppression. One is the power is not entrusted to you. You took it if you're suppressing people's votes, if you're making obstacles for some people when they go to vote that other people don't have to face. Sure. You know, I typically have driven up, parked in front of the voting uh, polling site, gone in, voted and come out in five minutes. This this um, midterm election in Virginia was the only exception in my life to that. Uh, but I watch on TV people standing in line eight and 12 hours. And that's a choice. That's a choice by somebody in power to make people in certain zip codes have a harder time voting. And they're doing that targeting racial groups in particular. Um so it's not entrusted. And second of all, the power isn't being used 
for all of us. It's being used for a subset of us. And um, that is not that is then the equivalent of private gain. So as far as I'm concerned, if you're not protecting the right to vote, y- you are running a corrupt government, period. Um, well, that's well, then everyone's condemned. That's just yeah. <laughs> look yeah. at the entire look at a, our gerrymandered system here. Yeah. Um, and our like a non-representative government. I mean, everyone's sort of got you know like egg on their face on that. But 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 I guess maybe more. You know, I do want to talk about that. And I think it's interesting yeah. because of the way that Biden is focused. Yes, on infrastructure first, seemingly wanting to paint over what you know. It's just sort of like you look. Let's move forward. Let's not look back. Um, I think he's much more invested in that as almost a, a way to neutralize some of the rampant sort of like foaming right wingers who somehow think he's not president. And it's like, I don't think you're ever going to neutralize them. Even if you build a bridge in their town, Um, they'll just like, you know, drive over it with their monster trucks and hanging signs that say, you know, let's go Brandon or something lame. Um, But, but yeah, I get that, you know, obviously if the sanctity of the vote isn't protected, like what the hell are we doing? But I think on the other hand, that's how I feel about, you know, if there isn't an, an um, a government office or agency, if there isn't accountability for even someone like the president who you think is is, you know, by their very nature, somehow we think the president um, is ethical. But as we know, we've seen that that is not the case. But, yeah, we can't even get the basic provisions passed that, you know, it's it, it kind of reminds me of the climate agreement that's going on right now. We're yeah. like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a hope. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we yeah, we definitely want to not die in a, you know, fiery whatever cataclysm, cataclysm exactly. <laughs> but, you know, so but we're just going to probably keep burning fossil fuels. And I feel like it's sort of similar for government ethics. You know, my thing would be if you still have dark money and super PAC money mm-hmm. flooding our system, then how the hell are even the candidates who are supposed to vote for um, legit? But so it goes all different ways, but I guess what, like maybe more finitely in, in like in the executive branch, what do you think needs to change yeah. before we're mostly just norms? So, so I think there's a few things there that absolutely need to change. And, and I have to say your comment is extremely gratifying to somebody in government ethics because people uh, have taken to acting like government ethics and anti-corruption efforts are just the stuff of mismanners. Like, oh, well, we should be polite and also we shouldn't be corrupt. But yeah. really, it goes to the heart of things. And when you think about the fact that a majority of people in this country actually don't vote, then the voter suppression is one thing. But then there's all these other people who have completely disengaged because they've given up on the idea that government's working for them and think it's just a bunch of corrupt people helping themselves. So I agree. I think focusing on corruption stuff is really important. I think um, one of the, and, and I have some very specific proposals, I think more broadly though, one of the things that needs to happen is we need a president to recognize that, uh, presidents should stop trying to seize more power from the legislative branch. Mm-hmm. And Trump was terrible about it, but this one's doing it too. And without congressional oversight and without a fast, meaningful way to enforce subpoenas, 
Um, Congress is toothless. And there goes the primary check on presidents and corruption that you learned about in social studies class in high school. It, it was a lie. We've all learned there, there isn't um, any check on the president if he has allies controlling Congress who aren't willing to, to rein him in. Oh, yeah. Um, and the Supreme Court. <laughs> and the Supreme Court. Uh, oh, God, I get depressed thinking about this sometimes. Yeah, no, but... no. Let's, let's just leave that for another day. It's been a lot. <laughs> but there are a few things that, that can be done immediately. And that is, um, and some of it has been in bills that have been proposed. We need new rules for the president. Right now, the conflict of interest law doesn't apply to the president at all. And part of that is because the conflict of interest law is a recusal statute, meaning if you have a conflict, you stay out of a thing. And the thinking mm -hmm. is the president really can't stay out of things. Well, I agree with that, but nobody forced the president to be president. So they should sell off any conflicting assets. And that should be a law rather than a norm. Yeah. And that applies to the cabinet, but not the president themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So th th the the person who's in charge of a department, like the Department of, of Commerce, has to sell off conflicting financial interests. But the person who's in charge of all the departments doesn't have to. It's insane. <laughs> it's like the yeah. more power you have to do harm, the less responsibility you have. Oh, he's the CEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they act like it's a perk of high office, which, right. you know, it's th that that's the thinking of dictators, not the thinking of public servants. Um, obviously, they should also have to release tax returns that there's going to be. And frankly, I think the tax returns shouldn't just be theirs, but any business that they own, because that's mm. where the corruption is going to be hiding. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Trump University going bankrupt. Yeah. I mean, how many things, right? How much, whether it's the, the, I mean, and again, he's just the example, but I know there are others and it's not just him, but he's just the most egregious example. But yeah, like maybe we shouldn't make that dude president or at least make him comply. But yeah. anyway, the, yeah. Yeah. And some of the other fixes may seem a little focused on Trump, but for crying out loud, if we don't address the last con, uh, the last crisis, how are we even going to address the next one that comes up? So we need to ban presidents and the businesses that they own from doing business with the government. Right. We need to ban the president's appointees from being in charge of matters affecting the president, like, say, a special counsel investigation of the president. We shouldn't have any presidential appointees interfering in that right. um you know we I mean, could jeff sessions recused himself real early on remember that dude just yeah. got booted from the castle yeah yeah you know weirdly as terrible a person as jeff sessions is he gets he deserves some credit for at least uh recusing from that which bill barr wasn't willing to do no so, oh. um you know I, I think there are a lot of other things that also could protect government like doing a better job protecting whistleblowers. And the project mm. on government oversight has made a number of proposals and has worked with a number of um, members of Congress on ways to strengthen whistleblowers and put some rain, rain in the powers of the president a little bit. Um, many of these are actually covered in a bill called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which is going to be reintroduced in Congress pretty soon. And that's an incredibly important bill that strikes at the things presidents do. In fact, one of the things it would do is suspend any statutes of limitation 
on prosecuting a president because we know full well a president's attorney general is not going to prosecute him or her. Yes. So, although it turns out Merrick Garland isn't much interested in that kind of thing either. So, No, I mean, again, we're sort of back to returning to normalcy and, and so afraid of the idea that somehow um, the federal government is being used in a partisan way as if we didn't just witness that um, for the last four years. And, and, and so like, I have problems because I, I, you know, I'm of two minds, right? Like I'm like, you know, absolutely. We need to rein in the powers of the executive branch, especially when it comes to things like war, um, you know, and, and the war powers resolution act, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But then you see when Republicans get into office, you know, and the ways they're just like executive, executive, um, uh, action, executive order after executive order. Let's just do it. We'll ask questions later. We'll put it to the courts. Blah, blah, blah. And it, it worked sometimes for Trump and it didn't work sometimes for other for, for in other instances. But I look at Biden and I'm like, I feel like executive actions and going solo are almost the only way forward around certain things, whether, you know, that is ending student debt. Um, whether that is just saying, no, I'm not going to expand mm. drilling in, you know, in the Gulf, uh, even though, like a court ruled against it. Like, I don't care. Like we're not expanding drilling in the Gulf. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not advocating unilateral disarmament as long as presidents have all these powers. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, my, my argument is to weaken the presidency, not a president. And mm. so what Biden ought to be doing is supporting bills like the protecting our democracy act uh, and a number of other things that are pending that would strip presidents, including future presidents of power to do some of these things. And I'll just give you one really bizarre, interesting example. Mm -hmm. um, when Trump extorted Ukraine, what he did was hold up payments of hundreds of millions of dollars to them that Congress had not only authorized, but mandated that he spend by giving to them. Uh, and yeah. within the government, and I'll try to keep this non-technical, but there, there's um, federal appropriations, which is when, you know, for listeners, the um, uh, Congress awards money to different parts of the government. But even though Congress gets to set limits on what each part of the government can spend within that there's some wiggle room and presidents um wiggle around with that through apportionment decisions and they issue these notices and schedules but they're not public and they're highly technical and they include footnotes and trump included a footnote that said we're going to hold up on the ukraine payment that nobody noticed and it said but we will still meet the deadline of the end of the fiscal year to spend it and then a few more notices down the line, they took out the butt and stopped promising that they would spend it. And the money expires on September 30th. If he doesn't spend it by then, he has violated Congress's intent and not spent the money. And nobody noticed it. Jesus. So one thing this Congress has tried to do is include in some of these bills provisions that would require the White House to be more transparent about how it's holding up money and to alert Congress quickly uh, whenever a delay occurs, to prevent a repeat of the Ukraine extortion. This yeah. White House has opposed it. And their arguments are extremely frivolous and, and disingenuous. They say, oh, well, it would be too hard to gather that information. Well, I happen to know that there's an internal system that tracks all of this stuff. In fact, it's a whole government-only internet on the inside where all agencies feed in data 
And we actually used it at OGE to develop a financial disclosure system. So they have all of this at their fingertips, but they're resisting. And the answer why? They don't want to weaken the executive branch. They don't want to give Congress more power to poke around. So that's not a matter of refraining from issuing executive orders. That's a matter of putting lasting limits on presidents with laws going forward that will apply to the next guy, too. But even right. that kind of thing, this administration is opposing for the simple reason that presidents like power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the personality type. Oh God, isn't it, though? Yeah, and so you you don't buy into the idea. You know, I think that, you know, a lot of obviously Trump's legacy, it, you have to go to Obama's legacy when you actually talk about what the hell we just went through. And some pundits like to say that, well, Obama took, you know, unilateral measures and basically took down some of the guardrails in the executive branch in office and allowed Trump to kind of like swoop in and utilize them to, you know, all his sort of heart's desire and his worst impulses. Um, what, What is your what are your what's your opinion of that? Well, I think that's true, but I don't think it's just Obama. In 1973, a historian um, named Arthur Schlesinger Jr. wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency, warning that presidents were seizing too many powers and knocking down the guardrails. Uh, And it's only continued in the 50 years since then. Uh, All presidents have done that in modern times. They're all headed down the road towards authoritarianism. Trump was going at 120 miles an hour. (laughs) Biden may be going at six or 15 miles an hour, but he hasn't pointed the car in the other direction. They are still seizing more power for the executive branch. And that should alarm people because whatever they grab will be available for the next one. I mean, that's incredible, right? I feel like, you know, the eight years of the Bush administration, the time that I was coming up and politicized me and you could see the power grab. I mean, from the very um, the apparatus that he used to even become president, you know, Um, and 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 all that and everything in Florida and the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the rapid consolidation around an illegal war um, around 9-11, the Patriot Act, et cetera. And it's like, we're, we have not extracted ourselves from, you know, if the war on terror is over, we haven't extracted ourselves from the, the, the apparatus that spies on its own people um, that, you know, like what's been done since Snowden, right? I mean, like yeah. what is, what has changed truly since we knew all, all of our metadata and our, you know, everything was being collected. So there, there hasn't been a ramping down because I think you're right that at the end of the day, yeah, the the executive branch is like, no, 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 we kind of like that. I mean, it's bad and all, but we like it. Yeah. And I think people overlook another aspect of government that we don't talk about as government ethics, but there's a saying in Washington that personnel is policy. And when you're standing in a room full of people who have come from big law firms where they only represented giant corporations and corporate executives and lobbyists and shadow lobbyists and people who have swung through the revolving door in and out and in and out of government, uh, they are going to be very protective of institutional prerogatives the way Merrick Garland has or the way this White House has been. Um, And you don't have anybody willing to truly look at transforming government. And so, uh, you know, the, the rules are so incredibly weak. They are important, 
but they're not enough. And and one of the concerns I have about the current administration is they refer to their ethics program as a compliance program. And I'll and I'll give them that is a huge improvement over Trump because he wasn't interested in complying with anything. But they're complying with incredibly weak rules and want to meddle because they're going around saying we're the most ethical administration in history. Well, you know, I I, I would argue that in many ways, uh, when you're looking at just the strict government ethics program and not things like drones or other stuff, Obama um, had an administration that was more ethical than this one. uh, And they're just striving to be better than Trump and want to meddle for it. And we really are owed an ethical renaissance right now. What are some of those areas? I mean, I don't know if you have specifics that you, you know, I know there was like chatter early on about Hunter Biden selling, you know, a bunch of artwork for, you know, $75,000 a pop or whatever. But are there specific areas in the Biden administration that you're like, this is, this is obviously a conflict of interest. This isn't good. Um, And then maybe related to that, like what's Merrick Garland? I mean, Merrick Garland's pissing a lot of people off. Yeah. Uh, Squandering a lot of opportunity here. So I often forget to be fair. And so to be fair, I should point out one quick example of how bad it was in the Trump administration. Trump put the uh, coronavirus response in the care of the vice president and the chief of staff of his office, Mark Short, had stock in companies affected by the pandemic response, refused to sell them. And we have photographs of him meeting with representatives of those companies to talk about how the government will address the concerns of their industry. Uh, I don't understand how anybody argues that that isn't a conflict of interest. So yes, it was worse then. That said, um, we have an administration that has, um, on the one hand, brought in very experienced executive branch people and they've done a better job with the pandemic. And and that's really important. But in some ways, uh, there's a downside to that. They come with baggage. They come with histories of having to work for companies and and not seeing a problem with with filling a room with people who see things the same way. And so they brought in shadow lobbyists from West exec and made Mm -hmm. one of them, the secretary of state. They made defense contractors, the secretary of defense and the head of the air force. Um, Recently, just like a week or two ago, a person from the big lobbying firm, SKDK, well, I guess they claim they don't lobby, so they're shadow lobbyists. They advise companies on how to go in and get government to do things they want, but they don't actually talk to the government oh, themselves. One of them just announced that he's joining the White House, where others from that firm have worked, and he's not even quitting his job. He's just taking a leave of absence. So there's a SDS, what is it, SKDK, SKDK representative working in the White House and keeping his day job. And um, yes, they're going to comply with the rules because they're better than Trump. So he'll recuse from the narrow sliver of things that directly affect his company, but they will not have him recuse from things that affect that company's clients. Um, And how can the public be sure that that isn't going to be a problem? Or we have a milk lobbyist leading the agriculture department. You know, there are people who have questions about whether milk is for baby cows or for humans. Well, whatever that you think the answer is, 
we know that the guy making that decision is a milk lobbyist. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because it's just so depressing. And, yeah, and, and also is a human. So, like, yeah. total conflict of interest. Well, there you go. I mean. In and of itself. Put a baby cow in charge and maybe you'll get an objective answer. Indeed. So. Indeed. <laughs> and, and Biden, you know, the Biden administration, not his direct family, but his his uh cabinet has hired family members their yeah, own the family, members. family i mean basically this is the the employment agency for the rachetti family he's got four rachetti's working in government one of them is his closest advisor and that one's brother is lobbying the white house who won't even commit not to lobby the white house and the white house won't commit to tell us who that person spoke to. And I can wow. tell you one thing, they can do all they want to do to comply with the rules, but that Rashetti brother is getting his calls returned. There's no way you're not going to return Rashetti's brother's calls. Um, and, and the bigger problem is it sends a message to the world that when Trump made a laughing stock of government ethics in the U.S., Biden ran on an anti-corruption platform and said, I am the antidote to Trump in so mm -hmm. many words. Mm -hmm. well, the antidote to Trump is not so squeaky clean when you're bringing in these conflicted people. And and yes, it's not technically a violation of anything, uh, but it's also not representative of average schmucks who don't run gigantic mega corporations. Yep. I count myself as one of those schmucks. Uh, <laughs> and, and frankly, I think people are too quick to give him a pass on the Hunter Biden thing. You, you know, think about the message that's sending about the appropriateness of profiting off of uh, public money. Uh, I mean, uh, of a relative in public service. Haiti is in a state of disorder right now. It had a president assassinated and it's had a number of other crises. Imagine if they brought in a new president. And one of the first things that happened in the first few months is that president's son started, who was a hedge fund manager, say, hypothetically, <laughs> and he starts selling art for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. The State Department would dispatch somebody to go and try to persuade them to stop it because they would have no doubts that it undermines public trust in government. Maybe. I mean, I don't know if in Haiti that would happen, but I, I yeah. just I do feel like the person who bought all that art is definitely a MAGA right winger who's going to like try and see the code inside Hunter Biden's artwork. So, you know, that says the election was stolen uh, and or whatever the hell like some. So like, I don't feel as bad because we all know that's who bought it. But no, yeah. you're you're 100 percent right. And, and we are basically talking about just how fragile American democracy has been and is and just how, you know, um, hypocritical when we talk, we shake our finger at the world and say, no, 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 you, you're corruption. You're, you're corrupt over there and there. No, no, no. We, we've baked it into the system, you know, and we've yeah. not, and we've yes. And we've obliterated all of these safeguards against authoritarianism. And I'm definitely scared. I just want to get your thoughts on the future as we wrap. I'm personally scared that, you know, not taking what we just went through under Trump seriously, um, is going to set us up for the Trump variant, right? Something yeah. worse. Uh, the Stephen Miller, the Tucker Carlson, the whomever is going to come along. And I think if, I, if I'm being nice, my feeling is Biden and administration is saying, okay, we have to deliver for the people first so that they like 
so we just sort of like calm the water, simmer down, you know, uh, again, here's some bridges and roads and, you know, we're going to get rid of some lead pipes and then maybe, maybe, maybe we'll pass the Build Back Better Act and, you know, you'll get, um, you know, universal pre-K or whatever it is, child tax credit, et cetera, even though it's only for another year. Like that's me being generous is them saying, well, we don't want to make too big of a stink and go after Trump because we're afraid he'll think that we think, you know, they're trying to like game it all out. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that Trump thought he was president of the red States and Joe Biden thinks he's president of 1991. So I just (laughs) think they're, they're playing by the old rules of what government is and what government should deliver and not addressing the current problems. So I too am scared. Uh, I, I, think that this country is a powder keg and we are sitting on a real potential for terrible violence in January 2025. I mean, we already had violence in January 2021. Yeah. Uh, And I think if the voter suppression works and some state legislature steals the election for real so that it isn't just a crazy tinfoil hat Trump thing to say, uh, things could really get out of hand. I have days where I just get lost in thinking about that, but I also have a lot of hope uh, in people because one thing the Trump era did was wake a lot of people up who'd been very comfortable. And and frankly, I say that because I always knew the government ethics program was kind of weak, but I never knew it was as weak as it turned out to be under Trump. And so I'm somebody who had a real awakening during that nightmare. Uh, I've had days during the last four years where I just wanted to be implanted back in the matrix and have my memory wiped and forget (laughs) what I've learned. Uh, But there's no going back. And, um, And I think a lot of people have woken up to the need for citizens to participate in democracy. Tomorrow, I'm going down to join a bunch of people who are protesting outside the White House uh, because there's a belief on the part of a lot of the civil rights groups that right now the weak link is Biden. He's not putting pressure on Manchin and others to fight for voting rights. And I think we need to let go of any partisan loyalty anybody might have and say, just as they demanded the other side, stop um, the other side of them. I'm trying to be nonpartisan here, but the other side uh, of them um, should should put country over party. Well, I think we all should. I think that's good advice for everybody from the far right to the far left should, and everything in between, should put the fact that life is pretty terrible under um, uh, repressive authoritarian regimes. And we have a lot of problems here, but things have an incredible way of finding new ways to get worse if we (laughs) let them. Uh, And, and I find optimism in, in the degree to which a lot of people have woken up in the past four years to the threats and in the engagement, particularly of young people. Um, yeah. and, and by young people, I mean, in many cases, really young people, not even just, you know, a generation or two, but but all the way down to, to high school kids are yes. truly uh, far more engaged than I ever was at their age, because like Biden, it was 1991. And I thought things weren't as dangerous as they are now. Um, I mean, it's it's you know, we're not talking about this issue, but it is very striking that two of the biggest, I would say, mass mobilizations in the last few years that we've seen have really to do with 
police violence and violence in communities, you know, related mm-hmm. to gun violence, right? And led by young people. Add to um, that um, some of the the um, uh, abuse of migrants provoked a lot of very oh, large yeah. uh, masses too, which which also is heartening because it means there are people with a heart and with empathy who actually care in this world, and um, uh, that gives me hope. Even even though, frankly, I, I wish people were in the streets more right now, and I fear too many people are exhausted and are just engaged in wishful thinking that everything's fine but there is a pandemic out there and that does scare a lot of people away from from large crowds yeah i mean yes yes but you're right i mean i think that it's interesting that um i I mean i think for for the amount of um bullshit that happens in this country on a daily basis. The fact that we're not in the streets more is, is astounding. And I think it's a testament to capitalism being a great distraction as well as uh, Instagram and uh, everything else. <laughs> um, and I'm very proud of like the one guy who stands outside of the Bannon arraignment with a sign. That's like, you know, clowns aren't above the law or whatever the fuck it said. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love those people. I'm like, if I lived in DC, I'd totally be one of those people. Um, Lastly, For five days, I've experimented with not reading the notifications on Twitter, and I feel like my mental health has taken a giant leap back to, <laughs> to, to being better. So, yes, the distractions really do keep us from, from doing what we have to. And then dupe us into thinking that it's only on social media and we're sort of performatively, mm-hmm. um, you know, for something when in fact you have to. And, and, and not only that, like, I mean, and as you know, or maybe you don't know, maybe you're getting more of a taste of now. I come from more of the streets, <laughs> mm-hmm. moved into not an office, but, you know, my home. Um, but, it, you know, the, it is incredibly it's not self uh, it's not about your your own sort of selfish need for human connection, mm-hmm. but protesting and demonstrating and being involved uh, and active um, for the greater good. Uh, ain't no feeling like it. It is yeah. real, real good. As as a good, you cannot replicate that. Any no matter how many retweets, no matter how much you go viral, uh, just being part of the crowd and and uh, connecting with folks around something that y'all know is is right is important. It also primes other people for action, you and others, because even the simple act of voting, again, most people in this country are not voting, but yeah. if they were out there protesting, they would certainly be doing some political things, maybe even including voting. And I think you get this instant gratification culture where people are like, oh, I did a protest and the world isn't perfect now. So protests don't work. And it's like, yes, well, yes. this is the fight of a lifetime, not of an afternoon. Oh my God. All, But all the time, like I'm someone who I'm very aware of how futile, but also important it is. So I'm like, I understand both, but yes, the line of, oh, protests don't change anything. And you're like, I don't, no one says that that was the only plan. You know what right. I mean? It's basically just to be like, we're still here, motherfuckers. We're plotting. Yeah. We've got campaigns. We've got, you know, smart folks like Mr. Schaub on the case, but we're, we're also out here. Um, I mean, I have my personal beef with, with what's the narrative since the election has been that that energy on the streets around the George Floyd murder that did not translate into electoral energy. It did. It 150% did. So stop running away from a base that elected you. Stop being afraid just because someone held a sign that you didn't like and that Fox News is freaking out about. Like, that's your base. Like, there there is is proof that the people on the streets 
were very aware and the repression they faced. I think folks, young folks were very aware that if that movement had happened under a Biden administration, the repression, the level of okayed repression would have been less. I'm not saying it wouldn't be there. Democrats love police forces, don't yeah. they? You but wouldn't it, have had at least Bill Barr's little green men, uh, yes. the guys with the unmarked uniforms. Yes, so. 100%. You wouldn't have had an extrajudicial killing um, up in up in outside of Portland, I believe. Um, anyway, lastly, Walter, we, we have something in common uh, beyond just being both really cool, uh, which is, <laughs> and it makes us cool, which is that we love Bomba Stereo. Um, yes. The Colombian yes. cumbia, like psychedelic cumbia band. Um, yeah, frankly, that's what made me decide you were okay. So, you know. <laughs> I know. Ever since I mean, then, I think I saw you post something about Bomba Stereo. Bomba Stereo, if you guys don't know, they're wonderful. You got to listen to them. You got to watch them live. Have you been to a live show of theirs? I haven't, no. And, and I just love them if they ever came to the u.s i'm sure i would find a way to go so they when do, the pandemic's over yes they tour quite often oh that's uh, great lisa met is amazing like she, her, i love her oh she's so <laughs> fucking great uh if you guys don't know get, just google fuego it's you know their big hit years ago but like every album is good it's just fun and playful and like um yeah you know you you gotta go live Every time yeah. I go live, though, I mean, I know you were saying on Twitter, you're like, ah, I'm going to be on the wall against yeah. the wall. But like, I hate when people who don't dance are in front. And like, if you don't dance, yeah. go to the back. <laughs> when the Leave us the space to yeah. get down. I feel uh, like in a crowd that big, I probably would dance because nobody could really see me and nobody would be looking at me. So no, I, no. I would do it. Yeah. It's uh. anyway, I you I hope to. Let's head out to a Bomba Stereo show together when they tour. Excellent. We'll hang. I'm excited for <laughs> this. Um, Walter Shaw, thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything else, any, anything you want to add or plug? You know, I think the only thing I want to mention is that groups like Project on Government Oversight got a lot of attention from the public during the Trump years, but we're still out there and we're still doing the work and we're still fighting for democracy and freedom and equality. One of Pogo's big priorities is fighting qualified immunity, which we just think is terrible. Yes. Uh, and something even worse at the um, federal level where they have even more immunity. Um, so just just remember us. Remember that and follow Project on Government Oversight on Twitter. They're at Pogo Watchdog is their handle. Amazing. So. I'm trying to find if I can bring it up. At Pogo Watchdog. I don't think we have it, but that's all yeah. good. Um, awesome. Wait, hang on. No, I don't have it. Uh, Walter Schaub, follow him also on Twitter at Walt Schaub. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for explaining all this. And, um, and, and just thanks for continuing the fight uh, outside of the halls of power. Um, I think that's where we need it. We need both, right? We inside outside strategy. I'm a big proponent. Um, but I love that you know, you could have also just been like, well, I'm done with the whole thing. I'm burnt out, blah. And I'm not saying you're not burnt out, <laughs> but it is, it is awesome. And really um, it, it gives me hope in people who do serve in government that it's like, nah, these folks are not just bureaucrats. They, they do care. They do important work and um, they want to make change. So 
Good. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed talking to you. So yeah. And, yeah. Any, and any fan of Bomba Stereo is fine with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're can. We're can. All right, Walter. Take right. very good care. Okay, Be well. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Walter Schaub, everybody. That was amazing. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. Just so you know, we don't have a show next week, November 28th. No show, no show, but we'll be back on December 5th. So don't you worry. Um, We'll be here. And we got a great show already on December 5th. We're going to talk about vaccine rollouts around the world. Uh, The new Pfizer pill, vaccine justice um, with my good friend, Sarah Lazar. Uh, If you guys want to hear the end of that interview with Walter Schaub, where we talk all about the Biden administration, what they are and are not doing, become a patron, patreon.com slash bituation room to do that. Remember, two bucks, five bucks, 10 bucks a month. You get all that extra content. You get all the entire interview with Mr. Schaub. Uh, And if you don't F with the Patreon, that's fine. Uh, Just remember to tip. Tip on Venmo, TBR-Live, Cash App, TBR-Live. And uh, thank you guys so much in advance. I know your your chats have been great. I know the discussion's been just like Liddy. It's on fire. I can feel it. Um, and remember, y'all, uh, fight the power. Fuck the patriarchy. And don't just bitch about it. Be about it.